As a young man, Richard E. Nisbet became fascinated with how people reasoned through the decisions they made, often making unconscious errors in their thinking with sometimes profound consequences. His intellectual prowess earned him a trip to some of the country's most prestigious academic institutions, where he quickly became one of the architects of what was to become a golden age of psychological research. From a humble beginning in Littlefield, Texas, Dr. Nisbet's book, Thinking, a Memoir, takes us on a ride through a fascinating career with some of the most well-known and innovative names in contemporary psychology, and through some of the most seminal experiments ever conducted in the field. Whether exploring the concept of cognitive dissonance, examining common problems in reasoning, exploring the influence of culture in our thinking, or identifying effective ways to strengthen our ability to reason and increase our intelligence, Dr. Nisbet has been on the vanguard, regularly publishing groundbreaking papers and books. His article, Telling More Than We Can Know, Verbal Reports on Mental Processes, continues to hold a record in social psychology with over 13,000 citations. His books include such titles as Intelligence and How to Get It, Why Schools and Cultures Count, Culture of Honor, The Psychology of Violence in the South, and Mindware, Tools for Smart Thinking, are highly regarded both within the field of psychology as well as in pop culture. His book, The Geography of Western Thought, How Asians and Westerners Think Differently and Why, won the William James Award of the American Psychological Association. Dr. Nisbet began his career as a professor of psychology at Yale University before moving to the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, where he has served as the co-director of the Culture and Cognition Program. Dr. Nisbet received the award for distinguished scientific contributions from the American Psychological Association and is a recipient of the John Simon Guggenheim Fellowship. New York Times bestselling author Malcolm Gladwell once stated, quote, the most influential thinker in my life has been the psychologist Richard Nisbet. He basically gave me my view of the world. This episode is a special interview with Professor Emeritus, psychologist, researcher, and author, Dr. Richard E. Nisbet. Dr. Nisbet, hello, and thank you so much for joining us. It's such an honor to have you on our podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'll be honest, when you agreed to do this interview, I felt a bit intimidated. You're such a well-known figure in social psychology, and you've made many important contributions to the field. And we really enjoyed your book and reading about your life and your work. And many of our listeners are psychology students, so I'm guessing many of them have come across your name in their studies. 
I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your book called Thinking, a Memoir, and what inspired you to write it? Well, all of my research through decades was on the topic of reason, one way or another, which sounds like 50 years on that. But I was able to look at such questions. How do people reason? What kinds of tools do they use for understanding the world? Uh, What kinds of errors do people make in their reasoning? Can you improve reasoning? What kinds of reasoning can be improved at any rate? And what kinds are very difficult uh, to improve? Um, and I also got interested in the question of intelligence. If we're studying reasoning, it's always studying intelligence of a sort. And I discovered that intelligence has been misunderstood by the people who've done the research uh, in that field. They've gotten some things quite wrong. For example, there's a great overemphasis on the importance of genes to what makes us intelligent. And I got very interested in reasoning differences across cultures. To my astonishment, it turns out there are really big cultural differences in the very rules that people use. So um, one way or another, I've been interested in inference and reasoning, how to make it better. So I thought, well, it's interesting to put that all in one book. You know, you mentioned a number of very noteworthy people that who contributed to your academic career as peers and mentors. And it, it's almost as if you've had the fortune of living through like a golden age of psychological research, so to speak. It seems as if many of the studies that we learned a great deal from in the past would probably never make it past most institutional review boards these days for various reasons, some ethical, some not. What are your thoughts on how psychological research has evolved in the last 40 years? Let me respond to your first point first. I I do think I I lived through a a kind of golden age. You know, I hadn't really thought about that. I went to the notes you suggested uh, I looked at for this interview. Uh, And I really do think it was a golden era. And I think part of the reason for that is that I got in on the ground floor of what was a massive paradigm shift in psychology. When I started in psychology as an undergraduate, we learned that, you know, between the learning theorists, the stimulus response learning folks, and the Freudians, we pretty much knew what we needed to know as psychologists. And then the cognitive folks came along and just, and that sounds quaint uh, to them. Uh, And they absolutely changed every field of psychology, social psychology, developmental psychology, experimental linguistics, everything became completely different. So it was an extremely exciting time. And for those of us who were there, we were picking the low-hanging fruit, things that no one had thought to look at before. So it was, for me, extremely lucky to be in that kind of an era. Now, you mentioned whether some of the research would be turned down by IRBs. One note about that is I think IRBs had begun to behave in totally unreasonable ways. I mean, disallowing research, which should not have been disallowed, but more importantly, just putting people through endless hoops and uh, delaying research. I mean, it was, it was absolutely terrible. And so I decided to do something about it. And I got the American Psychological Association to, to join me on the bandwagon of making IRBs behave. And uh, we had a conference with the scores of people in Washington who, who were affected by, by this, research donors, uh, for example. And eventually, 
we got a conference set up to rewrite the rules for IRBs, which we did. And now IRBs are totally different. I mean, 98% of what psychologists do never goes to an IRB because it's so manifestly not dangerous. Now, uh, I don't think I did personally any research which would have been turned down by an IRB, except possibly a study, which I can talk about later if you want, on uh, seeing if I could manipulate people's insomnia, make them get to sleep quicker, and also make them get to sleep, take longer to get to sleep. And then another study, which the one time I stepped outside of the reasoning parameters in my research was to look at the culture of honor, the difference between North and South in the U.S., and I did a couple of things there, which I think would have been a problem with IRBs today. That would be very hard to get them approved today. But other than that, very little. So little research that psychologists have ever done. It really poses a significant barrier. Sometimes we make people sound uncomfortable. Sometimes we make them embarrassed. Sometimes we expose them to something that's going to be physically painful, like electric shock. But I think reasonable people will say, you know, if, there's, if the knowledge gain is substantial, it's reasonable to let people be a little bit uncomfortable. So that's my history with the IRB. And I think that, uh, David, you probably um, have some thoughts about um, IRBs. David's, you know, more recently had to go through some of those hoops that uh, you referred to and and. I do think that IRBs are much better than they used to be, but certainly I think there are still some areas of research that are really difficult to do. And one of those areas, we both work in the prison system and being able to do any psychological research with inmates is particularly difficult because we have added layers, I think, of restrictions and bureaucracy and, and all of that. And, and I personally think that that's very unfortunate because this is a huge population that we're serving and we're not really able to do extensive research on what's most effective with that population. Well, do you think that you get in trouble, you get blocked for doing research, which anyone would agree is not going to cause any deep unhappiness uh, to be terrible or genuine suffering. You get turned down for doing things with prisoners that if you did to a stranger on the subway, no one would think it was terrible. Yeah, I do. I, I think that I know that for the request that I made, that they actually, I was actually granted a letter that, that fully stated that no harm would come to any participants. And it was sort of like their consolation prize, I guess you could call it, for not allowing me to do the study within the federal prison system. And so, and then I had to beg, uh, basically, in order to get any real feedback on why the, the study itself was a problem, just in general. And there were some uh, legitimate points, I, I think, in the feedback. But it had nothing to do with putting anybody at risk or making anybody uncomfortable or anything like that. It was just the, the, the nature of the study because I'm just one person. I was just one person conducting a study, a qualitative analysis that uh, one of the criticisms was that it, was, that it could be multi-institutional and that it should, it should span more institutions than just the one that I work at. Which is really difficult when you're a single graduate student just trying to finish a dissertation. So there were some there were some valid points, but it's incredibly difficult to get anything approved. I know with that particular population. 
Yeah. I, I, you know, I would just suggest that you show the IRB uh, the letter of the law here. What are, what are the, what is the guidance that comes from the federal government about IRBs? And basically, if you're not, if you're, if your intervention is benign, you know, you shouldn't even have to go to an IRB. Now, um, it's somewhat different, admittedly, when they're a prisoner. But I, I think the IRB should be forced to say that the prisoners are being put at some significant risk by what you're doing. Otherwise, they have no right to turn it down. Of course, <laughs> I know it, we don't have power uh, in that. Although, uh, you, you, might have, you might find you have more power than you think. I used to pound the table with our own IRB. And it, 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 did, it did, you know, it did, it, 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 you make it easier for them to say yes than to say no. <laughs> right. No, that's great advice. I appreciate that. Definitely. Well- and I think that it's it's really good to hear that there are, are people out there advocating for reasonable oversight and, and really kind of pushing people to say, you know, why can't we do these studies? What was the real risk there? So I think that that's very, you know, encouraging for us to hear. And I'm guessing for our some of our listeners who may be pursuing their own research or getting ready to pursue their own research to hear. Just look at the government guidance. <laughs> I used to joke that I nearly became a Republican when I was fighting <laughs> and understand what are these damn rules of putting you through your paces and all, you know, totally unnecessary. So people should be aware that the government is actually is on your side. Now they're on the side of the investigator, not on the side of bureaucrats who are paid to block you. That's really great to hear. Speaking about research, you did quite a bit of research, as you were mentioning, on the human tendency to engage in kind of less than rational thinking. And in some of our previous episodes, we've talked a lot about conspiracy theories. And I'm curious if you came across any patterns of thinking or errors in rational thinking that maybe lend themselves to conspiratorial thinking. I can't say that I did. I do have thoughts about uh, conspiracy theories that, I mean, if you're a psychologist these days, you're going to be thinking about conspiracy theories. One reaction I have is that, I mean, you pointed out in your notes you had sent me that there's evidence that uh, college students are less like, people who've been to college are less likely uh, to uh, buy into conspiracy theories. And I think that's true for two reasons. One is that a lot of conspiracy theories are so manifestly unintelligent. I mean, <laughs> uh, and people who've got a college education are going to be smarter, part, smarter because they went to college and smarter before they got it, even before they got to college. I mean, to imagine that there were significant numbers of people who believed that the Democratic Party was sexually abusing children in a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. I mean, how ignorant do you have to be about the way the world works to believe something? So uh, I think part of it is just, you know, be, be smart, <laughs> which is easier said than done. Uh, and I would say also, it's quite interesting to me, before any of this started in the U.S., before the conspiracy theories became a thing in this country, I was made aware that there are cultures which really buy into almost any conspiracy theory. There are countries in the world where if you give an explanation for an unfortunate event, which doesn't involve a conspiracy, people think, oh, you're just naive. I mean, you're you're ridiculous. You don't know what's going on. It has to be a conspiracy. So it's interesting that there are cultural differences and proneness to conspiracy theories. And I I don't think that the U.S. is such a culture, but we certainly do have a lot of people these days who who will buy into them. 
I was going to ask, so what are, what are some cultures? Because that's really interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Well, I've been, I've been told Arab cultures in particular. Not necessarily all Arab cultures, but at least some Arab cultures require a conspiracy uh, if an explanation is to count as valid. That's very interesting. You know, have you felt that or, or have you seen an increase in people buying into this type of thinking, you know, surrounding the pandemic or just kind of the current climate, I guess, in this country? I think there's been a huge shift in this country over my lifespan in how many people will believe in conspiracy theories and how many people will believe in conspiracy theories, which are, to me, manifestly absurd. Some of the the, the apparent endorsement of conspiracy theories, I, I'm not sure that people really believe them. Uh, for example, about a third of the people in the country at any given time believe that Obama had been born in Kenya. Now, did they really believe that? I, I think uh, my guess is no, they don't like Obama. So, you know, do you think he picks his nose in public? Yeah, yeah, probably does. <laughs> so, um, uh, and then uh, there were about a third of people claimed after 9-11 that George Bush knew about it in advance. Now, that's so manifestly stupid, <laughs> it's hard to believe. They really believe that. So the real question in these cases is, do you detest the current president of the United States? <laughs> and if so, you know, any, anything I offer up to you that, uh, that sounds outrageous, you may attribute to the current president. That's also an interesting point, and I could certainly see that happening. We were just uh, on a podcast or just interviewed for another podcast last week. And they had a statistic that something like 15% of Americans currently believe that there's the satanic cabal that is in charge of like making all of these decisions for the country. And that statistic, 15%, you know, at first I was like, there's, that's not possible. That just seems like far too many people. But then I, I'm not sure, maybe, maybe that is a possibility that that, that many people actually believe that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I share your inclination toward disbelief here, but maybe, who knows? Right, right. Yeah. So do you believe, and just getting back to the, the previous question with, about post-secondary education, and do you believe that we can teach people how to be more rational in their thinking? Yeah, there's no question. I used to... I mean, I, I started early in my career, I started looking at uh, mistakes in reasoning and people looking at a very flimsy, small piece of evidence and making a strong inference based on it. And I have an example of uh, sort of thing. And a cousin has a son-in-law who's got, he's got kids and they have not uh, gotten vaccination. And she asked, well, why are you not doing it? So, well, we heard about this man who got the vaccination and he had complete organ failure. Now, even assuming that that's true, that's one case. Okay, so that's one case of complete organ failure due to getting the vaccination. On the other hand, there are 600,000 cases of organ failure due to not having <laughs> the vaccination. So, but I mean... I find that, to my surprise, this kind of irrationality is treatable. First of all, a college education makes a huge difference in people's understanding of what counts as evidence and how much evidence you have to have in order to make a given kind of inference. Here's an example of what a college education will do for you. 
If you ask a University of Michigan freshman on the first day of class, you ask, tell them the following. He said, you know, early in the baseball season, there are always a number of the players who have a 450 batting average or higher, but no one has ever finished the season with an average that high. Why do you suppose that is? And they immediately will go into causal reasoning. They say, well, you know, maybe the pitchers make the necessary adjustments or, you know, maybe these guys, you know, they get cocky and they they back off. They don't work as hard. After a college education, you go up from 15% or 20% of people trying to give you causal explanations to 70% giving you a statistic, which is early in the season, you don't have that many at-bats. And so you can get extreme scores because batting is inherently a highly variable thing, whether you're successful or not. And in a variable population of events, if you have only a few instances, you're likely to get something that's relatively extreme. After all, at your first at-bat, your your batting average is either zero or one, and no one's ever finished the season (laughs) with uh, either of those numbers. And this astonished me, by the way. I mean, I, I was looking, I used to look at people's failure to understand that correlation doesn't equal causation, people's failure to respond to the base rate, people's in a, uh, in a, for an event when they're making an inference about the event. And uh, to get my give an example of that sort of thing, I was surprised to find that medical school makes people much more rational across the board, much more able to recognize how to conduct a cost benefit on things that are not medical at all, or to recognize uh, that something is a, a small amount of evidence or to apply a particular base rate, the, a failure that people exhibit. Uh, I'm sure I exhibit it all the time. By the way, when I say, say studying people's errors in reasoning, I am my own best subject. <laughs> so uh, I, 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 never, I never exempt myself from these things. But I, after I discovered that people are getting better at a lot of kinds of statistical reasoning, probabilistic reasoning, scientific reasoning, even though they're not necessarily being taught this stuff correctly in medical school. So I went and attended a few classes and I discovered I actually are being taught these things. So in a medical decision-making class, the, the professor may say, do a differential diagnosis between as between a disease A or disease B for this particular patient. And then they gives the description of symptoms to the patient. And they'll always get some students who'll say, oh, I think it's a, and then he'll say, are you aware of the fact that that disease is extraordinarily rare and disease B is vastly more common? You have no business on the basis of, uh, of the evidence that you have of saying that it's one of these extremely rare illnesses. And then he gave a great motto. When you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, people learn how to respond to base rate. And people in the behavioral sciences learn much more uh, than people who major in other fields. Uh, Psychology, sociology, economics, these people get improvements in their statistical and experimental and cost-benefit reasoning much more than people in the humanities or in the physical sciences. Uh, As I say, it was a surprise to me. And I I used to say, 
before I did the research, I said, you know, not only are we stupid, but you can't make us smarter. <laughs> and it turns out. So I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to prove that. I've been saying it long enough. And then I, to my astonishment, I discovered college educations make you smarter, but I can do it in the lab. I mean, in 15 minutes in the laboratory, I can get people to apply the law of large numbers to an in, indefinitely large category of events, just all in all kinds of domains. And this, by the way, flew in the face of uh, what people believed in psychology, which is you can't teach abstract reasoning. You can only teach how to think about concrete events. I'm totally wrong. You can insert an abstract law in people's brains, and they can use it for all kinds of problems for the rest of their life. I was quite surprised. And that's really good news. It is good news. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. And I think that we, we do see that, you know, we train graduate students at the prison where we work. And um, it's so interesting to see their development and their abilities um, in those areas over the course of their education. My job as an evaluator, we're doing differential diagnosis all the time. And, you know, and some of those same principles are the things that I'll discuss with our students. You know, for instance, when somebody comes in and their symptom, one of the symptoms that they're endorsing is hallucinations, the first thing that we always rule out is substance abuse, because that is by by far a much more common cause of hallucinatory experiences than a mental illness. And a lot, it's, it's kind of interesting because most people that are not trained in psychology or psychological assessment, that's not what they would think of right away. And so, so it's always really fun to kind of see that those skills develop over time in our student population. And I think that teaching them those skills actually helps me as well and, and helps to remind me of those errors in reasoning and, and, you know, kind of evaluating those on an ongoing basis in myself as a clinician. Right. Yeah. The, the technical name for this is applying the base rate. Many of the decisions that we make involve drawing on the base rate for our reasoning or drawing on the information about the concrete case at hand. And we have a tremendous bias for looking at the particular concrete case and forgetting about base rates. And I think if you learn in one domain, whether it's with the prisoners with hallucinations or it's medical school uh, training about prevalence of particular illnesses, if you learn that you have to pay more attention to the base rate and not just information about a concrete case, I think that can spread. It just spreads. It, it becomes a, a rule in all kinds of areas. I mean, people reach for the base rate. You know, This is what I think is going on. Well, wait a minute. How common is that? And could it be something else that's much more common, even though the case may not suggest it quite as strong? Right. So Dr. Nisbet, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your study with the children with the markers. Well, I did that study when I first started looking at causal attributions, how people understand the world, how they make inferences. And I thought that if you pay people to do something that they would probably have done anyway, they may think the reason they did it is for the pay and therefore become less interested in it. So to test this, Mark Lepper and I looked at kids in a nursery school at Stanford. We had in that particular nursery school at the front of the classroom, there was a surprise table. There'd be activities for the kids that they hadn't seen before. 
And for one week, we put magic markers out, which they had not. This is back to, believe it or not, there was a time when there were not magic markers in the world. <laughs> and this was, this was a new event, new kind of activity for them. So we measured how much each kid played with the magic markers. And then a couple of weeks later, an experimenter comes into the room and takes each kid aside and said, uh, do you remember uh, the magic markers that were here before? Uh, well, there's a man here today uh, who's interested in what kinds of pictures kids draw with magic markers. Would you be willing to do that? And all of the kids, of course, agree. Sure, they'll do that. But for some, he says, because if you would do that, you could get a good player award. And show them something. See, it says good player. And there's a, a gold seal and a, and a red ribbon attached to it. So would you like to draw for the, the man and, and, and get this good player award? And we figured, well, that's a good way to turn play into work. <laughs> the kid has become a contractor now. You know, right. I want to get that good player award. <laughs> so sure enough, two weeks later, we put the, out, the magic markers out on the table again. The kids who were paid to work with the magic markers are only half as likely to work with the magic markers after two weeks. So uh, I, I think it's a very general phenomenon, but you had, again, in the notes that you had for me, your very interesting question. Yeah, the, the follow-up question is, you know, that this is, it made me think about the implications for the treatment programs that we run in prison. Right. And we provide inmates with incentives to participate in treatment. And I just wondered, you know, do you think that this is a good idea? Right. Well, it's, it's, it's a, an extremely interesting question. And I, I've thought about that. And a lot of people over the years have thrown examples at me. Do I think this is a good idea to reward or not? I wouldn't make a judgment in this case without knowing a lot more about the setting and the people there and, the, and, and so on. But I will say, yeah, I, I'm not against rewarding behavior of all kinds. I think sometimes it can be a good idea I mean, go ahead and pay your kid 50 cents to taste spinach. Uh, <laughs> he might like it. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, very cheap lesson there that he's learned. So if, if it's a question of getting someone to do something that they probably wouldn't have done without the external ex incentive, but which they are likely to feel they're getting benefit from, if they do it, then I'd say, yeah, I mean, if, it, if that's what it takes. I, it's sort of a rule of thumb. You know, I, I can imagine that if I could look at your situation, I might say, you know, if 80% if of the inmates would take the therapy class, go into the therapy group without an external incentive, I'd say do that. Um, mm -hmm. Because I, I think it's highly likely that the people who are doing it on a purely voluntary basis will throw themselves into it more than if they say, oh, yeah, well, I sit here, I'm going to sit here and just you know, daydream you know, just to get the cigarettes uh, or whatever. So it's a long way around of saying, I don't know what I would do in that case, but I do think it's worth thinking about uh, in such a case. Would it make sense to offer an external incentive or would it make more sense to not offer it? It's, it's really interesting because where we work in the federal system, we have many types of programs, but in the place where we work, we have programs for sex offenders and we have programs for drug offenders. 
And the laws are written in such a way that the sex offenders don't get a lot of incentives for taking treatment in the, the federal system. And I, you know, you can kind of understand that just given the political climate and, and societal views on, on sexual offending. The drug offenders, on the other hand, are given up to a year off of their sentence for engaging in their treatment program. And they have other tangible incentives that they get as well, food items and, you know, stationery and, and what have you. Well, they're also paid. They're, they also get paid to take the program as well. That's right. And so what has been very interesting, just because I, you know, just kind of observing this is seeing how many people are in each program and how many people are on the waiting lists. And when we started the sex offender programming, I, I kind of assumed that not a lot of people would sign up for it because they weren't getting all of these external rewards that, that the people in the drug treatment program get. And I was completely wrong. That program is always full. There are always people on the waiting list for it, and they're not getting any, any rewards. And so I, I was kind of thinking about that as I was reading your book and, and your research and just thinking that, you know, that's, it's just interesting. And, and again, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't give incentives or that that's always a bad idea or, or anything, but it's interesting to see how these things kind of play out in real time. And, and I would be curious to know, you know, what is the efficacy of these treatment programs in the future after they're released one year, five years down the road, just to see. Yeah, it would be fascinating to do an experiment on that. I mean, I think it would be a wonderful experiment. And I think that was great to hear for some of our doctoral students who are listening and in need of a dissertation topic. (laughs) I I agree. I agree completely. (laughs) So, Professor, I I wanted to ask you about your famous paper on attribution theory. And uh, can you give us an overview of that paper and your theory about attribution? Well, early on in my study of attribution, I became persuaded that when we analyze someone else's behavior, we're quite likely to call on presumed stable attributes of the person, abilities, traits, attitudes, and to slight the situation, to ignore the situation. And we don't do that so much with ourselves. We're much more likely to recognize the situational factors that we were responding to. We just don't have the imagination to say, well, probably that guy also was in a situation which encouraged the behavior that he engaged in. And so there's lots of evidence for this hypothesis. Uh, And I would take sides here. I mean, you're right about yourself. Uh, You know what the situation was and you're right to call on it uh, to a degree. And you're wrong to just jump to the conclusion that that guy did that unpleasant thing because he's aggressive as opposed to some situational factor that might have prompted it. And my friend Lee Ross, who recently died, heard about this project and said, well, I'm sure you're right about the difference between the actor and the observer, where the actor responds to the situation uh, or understands that he was responding to the situation and the observer is likely to miss it. But he said, the truth is, It's that way for everything and including ourselves. We always overestimate the responsibility for the behavior as being due to some stable internal attribute of the person. And we tend to ignore or to slight the importance of the situation. We do that as observers. We do that as actors. We're more likely to do it as observers, but 
even for ourselves, we often just don't see how the situation is affecting us. And a, a huge, huge amount of research since that time supports that idea that we often just, I mean, are sort of amazingly blind to the situation. I'll give one example of that research that we did. We um, asked female students to please sign up for being a guide to people who are going to come through who are potential donors to the university, and you would show them around the campus. And if you did that, we could pay you, and then I'm going to give an amount of money that would make sense today, not the actual amount we offered then. If, if you did that, we could pay you about $8 an hour for your time, or if you did that, we could pay you about $20 an hour for your time. Well, not surprisingly, uh, the women who were offered more money were much more likely to volunteer to do it than those who were offered a small amount of money. And meanwhile, we've got observers watching this, and we ask the observers, how likely do you think it is that that student uh, would volunteer uh, for the blood, the blood drive uh, to help out for that? And if the student had volunteered these observer subjects, said, oh, yeah, she's quite likely to do that. And if she had not volunteered, they thought, well, she probably wouldn't do it. And they did that to the exact same degree, whether they had seen the woman be offered $20 versus only $8. They just, they, they didn't include the incentive in their calculations. They just figured, you know, they've got the number of this student. She's a volunteer-er. That's why she did this. So, I mean, as, as I say, a huge amount of research shows that we make that kind of error all the time. But we also make that kind of error for ourselves. And there's a huge number of studies now that show, for example, if voting takes place in a school, people are more likely to vote for a new millage, an increase in the tax, than if it takes place in church. And they're more likely to vote against abortion if the voting takes place in a church than if it takes place in a school. Now, if you ask somebody who's come out of there, say, how did you vote? You know, let's say it's the school place and it comes out of the school. How did you vote? Uh, did you vote for the millage or against it? Oh, I, don't know, I voted for it. So, and you say, well, do you suppose part of the reason that you did that is because the vote took place in a school? They may offer to punch you out. I mean, <laughs> give me a break. You think, you think I'm, I'm voting because of the, the, the situation I'm in, the, the, the building I'm in? That's crazy. Well, there are a million. There's a million where that came from. Situational factors that influence us. We don't recognize it. And part of that is a, was supported by another line of research I did. We think that we can examine our mental processes and come up with the causes for our behavior. Nope, We're, we can't directly observe our mental processes. We can only apply theories that we have about behavior to explain why we did so. We can't, we can't see, we can't see the cognitive process. Everybody understands we can't see memory processes. I mean, I, th I think of something, uh, I remember, oh, it was Maud who told me that. And uh, we know that I, I can't observe the memory process while it's going on, it just pops into my head. We understand we can't observe perceptual processes. I mean, it looks red to me. I don't know what the processes were that went on in my brain that allow me to see this color as red. But if it's a cognitive process, we have verbal things going on in our heads that we draw on 
to explain our behavior. And, and sometimes those are right, sometimes they're wrong. In any case, we can't observe them directly. But oddly, we don't understand that we can't observe our cognitive processes directly. Feels like we can. You know, Professor, as you were speaking, I was thinking about numerous examples of your point there. Uh, and it seems like I've come in to contact with a number of them lately. And I was just thinking about implications of that idea, say, in the prison system and what, what the environment of the prison system sort of implies in terms of behavior. I am curious to know, does making people conscious of that, of this idea, do you think it helps them? to uh, be more aware of it and to take these environmental factors more into consideration? That's an extremely interesting question. Uh, I, I, I wish I could say, like I do about reasoning principles, I know you can teach reasoning principles and have it impact people's behavior. I don't know about this particular one. I mean, it's such a powerful illusion, uh, both for the self and for our perception of other people, to assume that it's something intrinsic to the person that made them behave that way. I'm not sure, honest to Pete, I'm not sure if even a PhD in social psychology makes much of a dent. On, on <laughs> I mean, I maybe, uh, maybe it's a big, a big impact. I, I just don't know. I do know I make the error all the time. Lee Ross, who not only was a brilliant social psychologist, he was very wise. And I used to regard him as my personal guru and therapist, and I would take my problems to him. And he was extremely helpful about them, much more than anyone else I've ever talked to about my problems. And uh, near the end of his life, I asked him, how, how come you're so good at that? He says, because, Dick, I don't take your side on this. I don't stand by, the, by your side and look at the situation the way that you do. I look at the situation the way the situation is looking at you, that is the people <laughs> you're dealing with, the institution that you're dealing with. Lee Ross, certainly, either he knew before he ever started his research on this or he learned from his own research how to apply it in, in everyday life. He was, a, uh, he was an important figure in uh, conflict resolution. He was involved in working through conflicts between Palestinians and Israelis and between Protestants and Catholics in, in Northern Ireland and so on. And in fact, he had a gimmick there, come to think of it. He would say... He would make them people role play and say, you know, to the to the Catholic, here's the situation. I want you to to think that through the way you that Protestant is thinking about it. According to Lee, it, it often had an impact on people. So, yeah, right. Well, it probably is what he's thinking. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, Dr. Nisbet, you you talked in your book and you've spoken a little bit about this already on this episode but the importance of learning and understanding statistics and, and using that knowledge to increase a person's reasoning ability. And you've talked a little bit about why that's so important. So how can people who are interested in learning more about this go about it? Well, I'm very glad you asked me that question because <laughs> I have a book, uh, as you know, called Mindware. And uh, I also have a cheap version of that, totally free. I have a, a MOOC a massive open course on that through Coursera, uh, also called Mindware. So look at the uh, course, uh, and if you find you're getting something out of it, uh, try the book. 
And I, I just signed up for it after I finished reading your book and, and have just started doing some of the courses. And of course, I've taken a lot of statistics classes during my education, but I'm really enjoying it. And I think that you talk about these theories and, and the statistical uh, process in a way that's easy to understand and digest, and you use very um, simple examples. And I find that to be very helpful. You know, in the course of my job, a lot of what I'm doing is explaining things to the court. And sometimes I'm tasked with the, the job of explaining, you know, um, means and standard deviations and the law of large numbers. And so having some of these examples have re has really helped me in my career. And I think that, you know, for our psychology students, I think it, the book and the course would be a great addition to what you're already doing. And if you've never studied a social science, I think that, that it's really important to, um, to understand some of these principles. So That's thank you so news. much for, yeah, thank you for, for making it, for writing the book and for offering the course free of charge. I think that's just fantastic. Well, I'm glad you found it helpful. Actually, the course, I should say, I mean, I do a little bragging. It gets amazingly high uh, ratings, which surprised me because <laughs> I, I was always a good teacher of graduate students. I wasn't a great teacher of undergraduates. I never got bad ratings, but I, I was certainly not the, uh, the champ in my department for that. So but it was interesting doing the course, how, how extraordinarily difficult it was to do as compared to lecturing. Partly because you can't just say, okay, so, you know, the assignment for next week is chapter four. Oh, no, no, no let's do chapter five. <laughs> oh, let's do do chapter four. That would be good. And you, you just, you can't do that. It's got to be sure. smooth as butter. And you also can't just sit there and be a talking head. And nobody can take that. I mean, they just won't do it. So I have pictures and little videos and graphs and so on. And uh, apparently it made it a good course because it does good, good ratings. Uh, you know, it's funny because I was just thinking about that in terms of I took a, a statistics class. It's been a long time now, but I remember it taught in such an abstract way that it was really difficult right. for me to, to, you know, maintain any kind of interest in it. But throughout my education, I was always better at these word problems. And I remember those specifically because of the way that I think and the way I'm able to visualize things. It's like when you put the, these concepts into these very concrete examples and show exactly what it is you're trying to get at, it makes so much more sense. Yeah. Tell this to a statistics teacher and he says, you know, it's just, you got to get through this stuff. There's so much stuff that's got to be done. You have to do it once over lightly, abstract term. And my, my reaction is no, actually, the concept would get across better if you gave a concrete example. Uh, they, they, they think that it's, it's a frill to give a, an everyday life example. <laughs> but, you know, there is a movement now, which is not as strong as I'd like to see it, but toward revising secondary education to get more statistics and probability. I mean, algebra, you know, a lot of people don't get through high school because they stub their toe on algebra, which they weren't going to use anyway. I don't mm -hmm. use algebra. I, mean, I don't <laughs> either. <laughs> I just, it's just, you know, it's a big, it, it, it has nothing to recommend it except uh, on the one hand, tradition, and on the other hand, because we've always done it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it, there's statistics and probability and cost benefit analysis and how to do an experiment on yourself in your everyday life. All of this stuff is highly teachable to high school students. And 
the stuff a lot that they're never going to use, that 95% of them are never going to use, should just be pushed out of the curriculum and this stuff put in because it's, it's not going to, nobody's going to stub their toe on it. They're, they're, they're going to be able to do this and uh, it's not going to prevent them from graduating from high school. It's funny because I was one of those people. I It was Algebra 2, as a matter of fact. And luckily, by halfway through the year, I had accrued enough math credits to, to graduate without having to go any further than that. But I, I hobbled through the first semester of Algebra 2 with a C and then left the course because I just couldn't go any further because it just didn't make any sense to me after that. So I know exactly what you're talking about in a, in a very embodied sense. <laughs> well, I, I had a tough time. <laughs> My bias here is I had a tough time with algebra too. And for some reason, statistics and probability are duck soup to me. I mean, it just, that's the way I, I naturally think. And, it, it's, and I found it easy to build on those intuitions. But with algebra, it was just you know, it was pulling teeth. Yeah. So, Professor, in your memoir, you speak uh, with some affection for a number of other cultures that you have been affected by. Um, and there were a, a number of examples, including, you know, art and music, your encounters with Latino culture growing up in El Paso, and probably now that you're living in Tucson, and numerous people of Jewish descent, academics that you studied with and under. And I'm curious to know, what have you learned over the course of your career about how to approach other cultures and what advice can you give about that? You know, I'm not sure. I, I, your notes has put me up to thinking you would, would ask this question. And I, as far as music is concerned, I just, you know, I just like African-American music. I mean, of all kinds. I just, it, it just comes naturally. Uh, and But I love classical music as well. I mean, the first time I heard a piece of classical music, I just was entranced. Uh, so, so I like music. And if you like music... <laughs> You're probably going to like a lots of lots of kinds of music. Sure. Interestingly, although I grew up in El Paso, and uh, which is actually majority Hispanic, I, I came to love the art and architecture, and that's part of why I'm living in Tucson now. It's because and it's right next to the border again. But I I, I didn't actually get into other aspects of the culture. It didn't have that much interest to me. It wasn't until Later in life, when I started studying cultures in general, I said, oh, holy smoke, this, <laughs> this Hispanic culture that I was not paying sufficient attention to is extremely interesting as well. And Jewish, I mean, Jews are psychologists. I mean, psychologists are Jews. It's a very Jewish <laughs> perfection. So, but I was fascinated by the Jewish culture. I really was. And I, I now claim to be an honorary Jew. Because uh, by the time I was 17, most of the people I was hanging out with were Jewish, and I found the culture extremely interesting, and I just adopted it uh, because it seemed to fit. But the, the, the biggest culture thing in my life from a professional standpoint came from going to China 40 years ago and, and reading a lot about Chinese culture and philosophy, and I just was fascinated by it. And a student from that time, when I was in Beijing teaching social psychology, sort of befriended me and actually ended up coming to the U.S. to study with me. And one day he said, you know, Dick, you and I think completely differently about things. I said, oh, tell me more. And so then he tells me what was the topic of the book that I wrote ultimately on uh, Eastern versus Western culture. 
And the differences in reasoning are astonishing. I mean, we emphasize logic, analysis of attributes of objects, including people, to categorize them. And we bring forward rules and reasoning about people. They reason in a much more holistic way. And incidentally, they're much more capable of recognizing situational factors. They will see situational pressures and how they're functioning to make a person do what they're doing much more readily uh, than we will. Even perception is different. I mean, and this just blew me away when a Japanese student tells me, you know, if you look at the world, you're seeing different things from what I see. Oh, it should tell me more. So we ended up showing people underwater scenes for 20 seconds and then asking them what they saw. And the Americans will say, well, I saw three big fish swimming off to the left. They had pink stipples on their bellies and a single fin on, on their back. And the Japanese subject started out saying, well, I saw what looked like a stream. The water was green. There were rocks and plants on the bottom. There were three big fish swimming off to the left. They always start with the context. And when you measure where, the, where they're looking, they're looking back and forth from between the context and the most salient object because they're primed to do so. They're learning about the situation. They're learning about the context. They pick up much more in a given situation than Westerners do. But, you know, it's not, a, not completely free. We do have analytic skills, that uh, logical skills that they have to learn. They, they come with the territory for us, end up being uh, as good as we are at those things. But it is an effort, or for us, it's not. Do you think that uh, learning about or engaging with other cultures helps in terms of uh, learning how to think differently, like say more holistically like that? Well, I, th- I really do think I have learned, I mean, the, the biggest difference really between Americans and East Asians is attention to the social situation. And I don't know, I've been a, a meeting and I just, all that's in my head or what my thoughts are, and I'm going to dump my thoughts uh, on the table and try to get people to think the way I do and not pay that much attention to the, how other people are responding. It's a kind of, you know, stupidity, <laughs> actually. And learning how East Asians approach social situations has been useful to me. I mean, I, I am more effective in social situations than I used to be. So I certainly learned that. Whether I learned to perceive the world more holistically, more in terms of context, I don't know. Maybe. I hope so. So, Dr. Nesbitt, we have so many students who listen to our podcast. If you could leave them with some advice as they pursue their their educations and their careers in psychology, what would it be? Well, if they haven't yet chosen a graduate school, I have a piece of advice I feel very strongly about. Don't look at the web pages for the faculty members at the university. (laughs) Spend your time talking to people in your environment, in your school, about who are the best people to study with. And uh, it's the reputation of the scientists, not the interesting things that they're studying you should respond to. People think, oh, I want to go someplace where I can study emotions or relationships. No, no, no. What you want to do is you want to go to work with the best scientist you can find. 
and you can have the whole rest of your life to study relationships if that's what you think you need to do. So number one, ignore the web page. Number two, check out with people who are knowledgeable, including students at dinner. Students will sometimes be quite frank about what they're like. And then as far as a career is concerned, I did the best psychology. I started teaching at Yale with my first job. And all of the other assistant professors there were trying to figure out, how can I get tenure here? And that made them do things that, you know, they weren't the things that they would be most interested in doing. I did what it was most interesting to do. I didn't grind out papers. Now, I had the luxury of doing that. Uh, these days, my friends who teach psychology in graduate school, I'd sadly say, a lot of the students, they do MTurk studies, right and left, which maybe are not all that interesting, but they get a lot of data quickly. I mean, do the most interesting thing you can do in graduate school and once you get out, if you're going to be a researcher. And I think that's great advice. And I think it's great advice even for clinicians. I think the best clinicians are the ones who are following their passions and, and who do what really interests them. So, so that's really helpful advice. So Dr. Nisbet, thank you so much for joining us. We thoroughly enjoyed reading your memoir. And like I said, I've enjoyed taking your course and I, I plan to can complete it soon. And we're so grateful that you were able to join us for this episode. And, and uh, it's just been really wonderful speaking with you. Well, thank you. I had a good time too. Just real quick, Dr. Nisbet, I agree completely. Um, I, I really do feel like you, you have been uh, central to this golden age of psychological research. I learned a lot from reading your memoir and uh, from reading your, your, some of your work on social psychology. So thank you for everything and uh, for being on our show. Sure. Thank you. David, that was really an honor to have Dr. Nisbet on our show. I agree. We'll have a link to Dr. Nisbet's book on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. We'll also have a link to Dr. Nisbet's paper that is one of the most cited in social psychology, as well as to his free course entitled Mindware, Critical Thinking for the Information Age. I just started the course on Coursera and I'm really enjoying it, so I really highly recommend it to you guys. We also really recommend reading Dr. Nisbet's research if you're not already familiar with it, and his memoir was both educational and entertaining. Thank you all for joining us and for your continued support. We're getting closer to our season four finale, so if you want to be able to weigh in on what you want to hear for that episode, become a patron through Patreon. We also have a Patreon-exclusive episode, the ability to join us for our live stream Q&A session at the end of Season 4, and some Patreon-exclusive merchandise. And a big thank you to all of our listeners who've already joined and who've ordered merchandise. We really appreciate all of your support. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. 
This episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McConnell. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Dark Side by Chill Carrier, both provided by Jamendo.